You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 46. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Our guest on today's show is our very own Aaron Strasser. Aaron has been a Wildlands board member for several years now while working as a biologist with the Bird Conservancy of the Rockies. She's currently shooting for an Eyes on Conservation doc about her extremely important grassland songbird research in the Chihuahuan Desert of northern Mexico. We'll be chatting with Aaron about this ongoing research in the desert grasslands of Mexico and why it's so important, but we'll also be discussing Aaron's artistic background. As she explains in the interview, both science and art are lifelong pursuits for her, and she sees them as inextricably linked. This shared interest in science and art is pretty much universal across all of the folks who are involved with Wildlands, and it's wonderful to hear about how Erin has combined these two disciplines and the influence that this has on her filmmaking. Let's jump into the interview. Today on the podcast, I'm talking with our very own Erin Strasser. Aaron is a Wildlands board member, but also a biologist with the Bird Conservancy of the Rockies and uh, also a talented artist. Um, how are you doing, Aaron? I'm doing great. How awesome. are you doing, Matt? I'm good. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, this is another one of those interviews where it's like, yeah, it seems kind of silly that we haven't had you on the show yet since you've been involved with Wildlands for a long time. But uh, here we are. So welcome. Thank you. This is perfect timing, actually, because I am leaving to start field work in about two weeks. So getting pretty excited and amped up for the field season and ready to go. Awesome. Well, yeah, glad that we can catch up with you before you head out into the fields for your uh, season coming up. Um, I, I, I Before I jump into sort of the details of the work that you're about to do, uh, I kind of want to take a step back here and uh, start things off by tracking your interest in wildlife and biology back to its roots. Um, oh, so what do you think? Can you, can you identify the seed of your passion in wildlife and biology? Well, <clears throat> we don't actually normally call them seed. They're called uh, sperm and eggs. So, you know, there's actually a lot in my genetics that has led to my passion uh, with wildlife and biology. Both of my parents are very into the outdoors and nature, and, and many of my family members always fostered my interactions with insects and plants and sent me to nature camp and that kind of thing. And so basically, since I was a little kid, I knew I wanted to be a scientist. And as soon as I got to college, I went to Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff, Arizona, I immediately found a gig at a lab doing research, and that was with the Avian Cognition Lab. I was working under Dr. Russell Balda, and we were looking at social cognition and behavior in social corvids, pinion jays, Clark's nutcrackers. And I, I never really thought of myself as a bird person, per se. I was very interested in, in asking questions and, and just being generally inquisitive but birds weren't ever a focus until I started to learn more about them. And I just kind of went down this dark black hole of, of birds and have just immersed myself and, and explored these different realms of, of science. And so eventually I made my way to grad school at Boise State University and I'm now here at uh, Bird Conservancy of the Rockies. I've been here for three years doing research on birds. So 
Awesome. I love how you describe your passion for biology and wildlife as as a deep, dark black hole. <laughs> <laughs> Filled with so many exciting things. I've, I've had the opportunity to go around the world uh, with this passion, so it's been a fun journey. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely a, a great way to travel, and especially as, you know, uh, uh, a young college graduate. Um, it's definitely a great way to explore and see the world. For yep, sure. yep. Um, yeah, so um, Boise, Idaho, the, the time that you spent uh, doing your graduate research, uh, that's that's where I first met you. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, maybe you could just sort of give us sort of a brief summary of um, your graduate research that you did here at BSU. Yeah, so I believe, um, was it the, maybe the last podcast you talked to Julie Heath, who was my advisor at Boise State, and uh, we were working on this, the longest term um, monitoring of American kestrels in North America. And so we had this great nest box population and some questions that involved, well, why does it appear like some kestrels are doing really poorly and some are doing great and able to fledge all of these young? And we had this hypothesis that it was related to human disturbance and human disturbance was leading to stress, which was causing these birds to abandon their nests. And so we had nest boxes up along the interstate. We had them in more rural areas, more natural areas. And we would monitor those nests, catch the adults, get blood, and then look at a stress hormone called corticosterone. And we did, in fact, find that those birds that were nesting in the highly disturbed areas, especially along like interstates, they were more likely to have higher stress levels and more likely to abandon. So we found this really interesting link. Um, yeah, it was it was it was fun. Neat, and yeah, and that that has sort of immediate uh, immediate management implications. You just are able to move nest boxes to a, a, a safer location, right? Exactly. We immediately took them off of those interstate signs because you know it it seems like a great place for kestrels. You see them perched all over the highway, but it's kind of this little trap you know if they're if they're all coming there because there's this resource of a nest and and potentially lots of food along the edges of the highway that's great but if in the long run it equates to lower fitness because you're not fledging as many young or abandoning a nest altogether it's really not worth it so how did you end up working for the Bird Conservancy of the Rockies? Maybe you can, maybe you can tell me a little bit about um, this organization, about the Bird Conservancy of the Rockies, and then tell me how you sort of ended up uh, working as a biologist there. Yeah. So we're a nonprofit, and we work to conserve birds and their habitats through science, education, stewardship, and outreach. And we've got our headquarters here in Colorado, but we do work all over the Rockies, into the Great Plains, down into Mexico, where I work. And then even beyond that, we've started to do some some work in Central America as well. And, you know, we, we monitor and research birds so that we can try and inform conservation efforts. We're going out and working with ranchers and landowners to try and to enhance their land, to make it better for birds. And then we're also, you know, working directly with, with kids and, and the public to try and make them more aware of birds and habitat loss and, and what's going on. It's definitely good to hear about, uh, you know, conservation and science-oriented nonprofits where 
um, that, that have that strong focus on, on outreach and education and, and aren't sort of solely um, focused on, on doing the research. Um, exactly. Um, as you got to get it out there. Yeah, as both you and I know, it's like you're, you're, in order to have the uh, intended um, impact, yeah. um, you, you need both components to that. Um, exactly, especially, especially when birds are, are, a lot of them are on private lands. And we need to be able to work with those private landowners to conserve them because that, the fact of the matter is, you know, especially down in Mexico where I work, it's, it's all private land. There aren't these huge swaths of, of public land like we have in, in the United States, like national forests. So working with those people is crucial. Tell us a little bit about your, uh, the, the, the grassland songbird research that, that um, you're involved with in Mexico. Um, I mean, what, what species are you working with and, and what are you hoping to learn through this, this work that you're doing? Yeah, so right now specifically we're working with Bairds and Grasshopper Sparrows and starting to delve into some work with Sprague's Pipits. But this, this is work down in the grasslands of the Chihuahuan Desert, which is in the southwestern United States and goes down into northern Mexico. It's a highly threatened ecosystem that's just been demolished through grazing mismanagement, shrub encroachment, climate change and drought, and then most notably just complete loss of grassland habitat through conversion to agriculture. And so this is the area where most of the grassland birds of North America are spending their winter. And it's not just like, you know, a three-month winter. They're spending six to eight months down there, some of them. And um, because they're all kind of concentrated in this pretty small area, there's all of these threats through habitat loss and con- conversion to agriculture that are causing these these populations to decline. And these are, are birds that have declined since the 1960s by 70 to 90 percent. So we're looking at just a huge loss of, of these birds. Wow. So when you say these like 60, 70 percent declines, um, you know, is, are, are these all grassland songbird species? I mean, how broad are we talking here? And this is pretty broad. The majority of grassland birds, because they are wintering in such a small concentrated area, they're all being being affected by these threats. So so most of them are declining. And we're talking about the bears and grasshopper sparrows like I'm studying, Sprague's pipits, McCown's longspurs, chestnut collar longspurs, northern harriers, loggerhead shrikes, mountain plovers. All these grassland birds are just crashing. And and overall as as a guild, it's it's the guild that is declining more steeply than any other in North America. And is it is it safe to say that sort of the primary cause behind that decline is, um, you know, the, these declines in um, the the habitat where they're overwintering in the Chihuahuan Desert? Well, the fact of the matter is we don't know. Um, a lot of the same things are going on in North America. So grasslands are extremely fertile. It's an ideal place to grow crops. So there's just loss through conversion of agriculture here. Uh, there's also, you know, with poor grazing practices, you can you can lead to just decreased grass cover. It can cause invasive species to come in. Um, there's there's heavy pesticide use. Um, so there's there's so many things that could be playing a role in these bird declines, and that's our goal is to figure out what is the most important part 
that is leading to these population declines. That way we can try to focus our efforts more specifically, focus our money more specifically on, on where those declines are happening the most. Because we don't know. We, you know. We're doing this work on the wintering grounds because, A, this is where those birds are spending the majority of the year. You know, They're only on the breeding grounds for you know, four to five months. Um, and B, it's such a small concentrated area that any of the threats are kind of, they're more concentrated. They're, they're happening more intensely. Basically, it sounds like, you know, sort of your goal and the goal of the Bird Conservancy, the Rockies in this research is to sort of collect this baseline data um, in this ecosystem that all these grassland songbirds are using um, for wintering habitat um, just because nobody has done it before. I mean, does that sound accurate? Yeah, there there isn't information on these birds. And so one of the more critical parts of these population declines could be overwinter survival. So if these birds aren't surviving on the wintering grounds, then they're not coming back to breed on the breeding grounds. So we're looking at survival and technology has allowed us to do this as well. So, you know, 10 years ago, we couldn't put a little radio transmitter on these birds. They only, they weigh 15 to 20 grams. So now that we are able to use this technology, we can track them around and try to figure out what's killing them, what habitat features are associated with their survival, what climactic conditions are associated with their survival, and try to get a a bigger picture of what's going on. Gotcha. So you guys are putting tiny, tiny little radio transmitters on these songbirds and then just... And this is like just to follow them around on the wintering grounds, yeah? Exactly, yeah. They're they're little VHF transmitters, and they weigh about 0.6 grams, and they have a little elastic kind of figure-eight loop that wraps around. They have a loop that goes around each leg, and then the transmitter sits on their back like a little backpack. It's got an antenna that extends out, and so they are spending their days foraging, hiding from predators in the grass, and we're out there with antennas tracking them down. And when we find a bird that's been that's dead, usually that's by they've been depredated by a loggerhead shrike or northern harrier or short-eared owl. In fact, we found two transmitters in one owl pellet once. Wow. Um, so try to figure out what was the cause of mortality at, at that point in time based on the the leftover evidence. That could be a, a transmitter hung on a, a spine in a mesquite shrub, that would indicate that it was a shrike. How long has this research, research been going on, and you know, what have you guys learned so far? Well, this project specifically, this is going to be our fourth winter, this upcoming winter. Um, but we've been doing work, and, and I should mention that Burke Conservancy of the Rockies is recently, that's a new name, we are formerly Rocky Mountain Bird Observatory. And We've been doing work in the Chihuahua Desert grasslands for many, many years since the early 2000s, just trying to get an idea of like where the priority areas are for these grassland birds, getting an idea of densities of grassland birds and getting information on habitat relationships with these birds. And so now that we have an idea of where they are and where are these more important areas, now we're looking at things a little bit more in depth and trying to understand like what are these factors in the environment that are limiting their populations and their survival. So this is the fourth winter for this project. 
And uh, it's the fourth winter for our primary site, which is down in uh, Chihuahua, near Hanos, Chihuahua. It's on uh, a ranch that is owned by the Nature Conservancy. It's called Reserva Ecológica El Uno. Uh, but we also have two other partner sites with our partners that we work very closely with. And one of them, it's its second winter, and uh, we're working with the Universidad Autónoma de Nuevo León at that site. It's in Coahuila. And the third site, this will now be our third season, and it is with the Universidad Juarez del Estado de Durango, and that's in the state of Durango. And so at those three sites, each site we're doing uh, about 100 birds wearing radio transmitters over the course of the winter and, and tracking them. So we're getting an idea of what's going on, not just at this one site over multiple years. We're looking at multiple sites over multiple years. What, if anything, is being done to to help these ecosystems and restore bird populations? Um, I mean, or are you guys just not really at that stage yet? Like you don't have enough information to even know what needs to be done to help these birds? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, at this point, with the results that we have so far with the survival research particularly, we've seen that there's huge variations in survival, huge variations. We're talking... One year, it might look like only 14% of birds are surviving the winter. And another winter, it might be 90% of birds are surviving the winter. So there's pretty big fluctuations. And it looks like precipitation is playing a role. Precipitation during that winter, because if there's a lot of snow and it's wet, it's colder. It's going to lead to you know increased energy expenditure, trying to find food and stay warm and exposing them more to predators. Um, it also has to do with precipitation during the summer because that is going to cause uh, denser grass or less grass, depending on, on what the rain is like. And those birds need that not just for food, but for cover. Um, shrub density might also be playing a role because the, the more shrubs there are, the more perches there are for predators, such as loggerhead shrikes. The taller they are, it's, uh, it's better perches for loggerhead shrikes. So looking at factors like those will help inform what we need to do with landowners. So if, for example, we see that these birds require really dense grass that is at least 30 centimeters in height, then we can go and work with private landowners and try to help get them to manage that land in a manner that, that produces the habitat conditions that are beneficial for the birds. And not coincidentally, those conditions that are beneficial for the birds are also really great for cattle. And that is the, the primary industry down in the grasslands in the Chihuahuan Desert. It's raising cattle. And, you know, cattle need grass. That's what they eat. So we need more grass, good for the cattle, good for the birds, less shrubs, because with fewer shrubs, that's more grass. With fewer shrubs, it's fewer perches for predators. So it's all around um, beneficial. But we've got uh, a habitat program uh, in our international division, which is what I'm a part of at Bird Conservancy of the Rockies. And we focus on working with private landowners and trying to, to help them create these adaptive management schemes to, to increase bird densities on their properties. Uh, we also work with them and help them do just little things like putting in escape ramps in their water tanks so that if a bird like an aplomato falcon, which is critically endangered in the Chihuahuan Desert, falls into a tank, it can escape. You guys are involved sort of on multiple levels and uh, yeah. uh, as far as 
you know, helping landowners, you know, sort of both just educating them in general about all these different bird species that, that are present on the landscape, mm-hmm. um, but also trying to come up with like really specific things that they can do to um, sort of help these birds. It just seems to, to me like there isn't very much sort of general awareness, at least in the U.S., um, about what's happening. You know, you hear a lot about um, other species that are in precipitous declines or that are endangered, but you don't hear very often about, you know, the grasshopper sparrow. It's it's true. Sometimes I wish I worked with, like, sea turtles or elephants because uh, these grassland birds are underappreciated and people aren't aware of this big issue. Um, it is becoming, you know, more of an issue. We We've... You know, we recently had a, a PBS documentary come out that was specifically about the plight of grassland birds, and hopefully that'll reach a pretty wide audience, um, just so that people have some information on what's going on. And, you know, one of the things that makes the biggest difference, I think, working with these birds and getting people um, involved and aware is is having people see them up close and personal. And the reason for that is they're, they're birds that you just wouldn't see otherwise they're little brown birds that are skulking in the grass and and I was actually explaining this to someone last night I said well you know when you see one of them in the hand it it just changes your perception of what's going on because you see this fragile little bird that is stunningly beautiful just all shades of brown and black and and mottled and stripes and just perfectly camouflaged for their environment and you see them and you realize, wow, you fly back and forth every year. You go to this really harsh area of the Chihuahuan Desert where it can be pretty cold and windy and and just overall just very challenging for, for these little birds. And, and yet somehow some of them are powering through it. And we we do work by bringing students out in the field with us sometimes. They help us round up and catch these birds and it's so exciting to see their faces when they see one of these birds up close because it's something they wouldn't be able to see otherwise. I mean, they're hard to see with binoculars, let alone you know, just with the naked eye. So having it, it right there up close and personal, I think, is really important. I haven't seen that uh, the PBS documentary, Plight of the Grassland Birds, yet, but... Um... I just I watched the trailer, um, and and you're in the trailer. You've got you know quite a bit of dialogue just in that little two minute trailer there, which is awesome. <laughs> um, they I mean they show in the trailer like just some clips of you know you guys letting the kids release um, the songbirds, which I think is is really important. You know, and uh, you know in line with you know the bird migration work that's been done in Boise that you know uh, you're very familiar with. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in the Intermountain Bird Observatory and the work that they do. I mean, it's just the the importance you know of showing especially kids you know how um giving them that experience i think is 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 really important for future conservation efforts yeah for sure there was there was also just a an article in the new york times a couple of days ago and it was about the issue of water shortages in the chihuahuan desert and how uh the mennonite farmers in that region that are relying on the water for agriculture how a lot of them are now leaving to go to other places because that's another huge issue down there is because of all this extensive uh agriculture they're putting in these new wells most of the time illegally and it's draining the aquifers which is further decimating these grasslands. So it was really cool to see an article about that in the New York Times. It was highlighting this issue. 
I really wish that they had, you know, brought some light on more of the conservation issues with not just the grass on birds down there, but the other species like, like the, uh, the pronghorn antelope that are just, you know, losing habitat at an unsustainable rate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, shoot, shoot me the link to that article. I will. Yeah. Yeah. I'll put that in the show notes for the episode here. Um, so, I mean, in addition to uh, all of this research that, that um, you've been working on over these past four years, um, you know, in, you know, what, what little, I'm sure, free time you have when you're down there in Mexico, you've <laughs> also been working on putting together um, an Eyes on Conservation uh, short film about this uh, grassland songbird research that you've been doing in Mexico. Yes. Um, so maybe you can just give us like a quick update, like just let us know sort of, you know, where you're at uh, in the process of putting this film together. Yeah, so I've been getting footage the last three winters, and I'm really excited to be getting some more this year, especially with the awesome digiscope attachment I have for our awesome Swarovski scope. Nice. So, yeah, we're going to try and get some really good footage of the birds because that that's hard. They're fast. They're hard to see, and I think with this this setup, we'll, we'll get some good stuff. Um, but, yeah, I've, I've gotten a lot of, of footage of – all of the people involved helping us catch birds because it's a, it's a pretty big, massive ordeal to catch these birds. It's not like um, some of the other mist netting endeavors that like migratory um, bird stations might have where they just set nets up and wait for 30 minutes and come back and they're there. This is like setting up a huge line of nets, like four to six 12-meter long mist nets and then creating this big semicircle and walking towards the nets and flushing the birds eventually in. So I've gotten a lot of footage of that. It's, it's, uh, it's good stuff, and it's entertaining to watch everybody kind of get their hopes up, like, we're going to get this bird, we're going to get this bird, we're going to get this bird, and then, ah, it flew over the net again. <laughs> <laughs> and we use, um, we use frisbees and hats to try and throw them up over the net if it looks like the bird's about to go up over it, and it'll kind of scare the bird and it'll dart back down and go into the net. So we've gotten some footage with that and, and, you know, lots of good wildlife sightings out there, lots of coyotes, um, prairie dogs, golden eagles. Um, yeah, but it, it should be a, it should be a good one. It's, it's beautiful down there. And every time I, I take a picture, any footage, I look back on it and I'm like, man, that place is beautiful. The, the sky is always sunny and blue the grass is just this perfect brown and yellow and yeah i think it'll be it'll be a good little good little uh glimpse into what's going on down there and and um you know, the general issues why we're studying it and then also just kind of our our life down there and and how we're getting it done the footage i've seen so far is 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 really awesome and um definitely showcases the spectacular scenery as you say some yeah, excited to see what you're able to capture this season. Um, I'm curious to hear about, I mean, maybe some mistakes that you've made like while shooting or like difficulties that you've encountered while working on this film project over the past few years. Um, you know, anything that like other folks, you know, if there are other aspiring filmmakers out there might be able to, you know, learn something from. Yeah, well, it's it's amazing how much patience it takes to try and get um, footage of these little birds they're darting around in and out of the grass. And I, I kind of thought, oh, it won't be that hard. You know, I'm, I'm so used to seeing them. I can spot them. But carrying around a camera on a tripod, like you got to get you got to get pretty fast at that. 
it's a quick draw. And <laughs> yeah. so you either got to be fast or you have to be really patient and plan on spending a decent amount of time doing it. Um, yeah. You know, but also like, I don't know, one of the things that I enjoy doing is focusing on the little things, the other parts of the scenery that are, that are really interesting, like a, a neat windmill with a, a sunset behind it or, you know, grass and how it's, it's backlit by the sun and, and reflecting the light really interestingly. Um, I've gotten some, some really cool shots climbing up from high points and getting good vantage points of, of everyone out in the field, walking around with their antennas looking for birds. And, and that's, that's good. That's really neat to see. The experience of, you know, putting this film together over the past few years and, and gathering footage for the story, uh, I mean, what, what has it taught you? It's taught me to think about this, this type of research and really any kind of research project in terms of how that information can be conveyed to other people. Like, I, I've been thinking a lot after looking through all of the footage that I have, like, how can I now tell a story with all of these cool shots that I have. And, you know, I, I realize that it's going to be important to have all this nar- narration and interviews and things like that. But a lot of it is finding the right images to tell that story and capturing people's attention and showing beautiful things that will capture them and allow them to listen to the, the, the bigger picture and the message that you're trying to convey. I think a lot of filmmakers would say the same thing, you know, that that it, it sort of forces you to take a step back and look at the bigger picture and also think about how other people might view, you know, what the experience you're going through. Um, mm-hmm. But also, you know, thinking about how are you going to craft it and like how you're able to like control the way other people perceive yeah. what you're mm-hmm. doing um, is, is fun to think about. And, you know, and, and the, the way that you go about doing this, I'm sure, is colored by other artistic pursuits mm-hmm. I, I would guess um definitely so, yeah and so i was kind of that that's sort of my next question is you know like maybe you could just sort of tell us a little bit about you know your other artistic interests um and then maybe like how that influences your filmmaking mm, i love art <laughs> um i it's it's one of those things that has it's gone hand in hand with my passion for biology and science and wildlife since I was a little kid it's I would see something and I would want to draw it I would see a bug and I'd want to paint it and so now you know although I don't have as much time to do it I I try to fit it in but I you know I do any number of things I've been doing a fair amount of painting uh especially of fish because I'm a big fly fisher woman and I have this huge appreciation for fish skin and all the colors and smooth texture um so I do a lot of that. And then I've also recently picked up block printing again, which is something I did more uh, when I was in college. But um, yeah, and that involves uh, taking a block of wood or linoleum and carving out the pieces where you don't want color, rolling ink over the surface and then printing it on paper. So um, like I did, I've done two of them for uh, for Wildlands, I did one of a condor, and then there was another one of a bluebird when we were raising money for the Kickstarter campaign for Bluebird Man. Um, so I've been doing more of that. And, uh, yeah, I think having that more of an artistic mind has has helped me with the filmmaking and, and seeing those interesting perspectives and and angles. So, 
I'm fortunate that I have that. My brain isn't all scientific. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think that's really important, you know, and I, I mean, that's kind of universal with all of us who are involved with Wild Lens. You know, I, I think all of us have these sort of parallel interests in, in wildlife biology, but also art. Um, you know, there's certainly differences in like the different like facets of those two disciplines that, you know, folks have specific interest in, but I mean, that, that is pretty much universal. Um, this was a fascinating conversation. It's good to hear about all the really important grassland songbird research you're doing, but also about, you know, the, the film you're working on and the artistic side of it and, you know, how those two interests are coming together to create what will hopefully be a amazing new eyes on conservation film. Yes. Um, that'll be ready to release uh, when once you get back at some Yeah, point. sometime next year. Yeah, I'm going to work on it while I'm out in the field this year. Nice. nice. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. It was fun. All right. That was our interview with biologist and grassland songbird researcher Aaron Strasser. The grassland songbird conservation work that Aaron is involved with is extremely important, specifically because the plight of grassland songbird species is dramatically underrepresented in the media. It's clear that Aaron and the Bird Conservancy of the Rockies as well place a high importance not just on the research that's going on, but also on the outreach and educational components as well, which is very refreshing to see. Aaron is truly making a difference here by playing a central role in both the research and the outreach components of this issue. Her appearance in the new PBS documentary, Plight of the Grassland Birds, as well as her work on a new Eyes on Conservation film about this topic, will hopefully make more people aware of the troubling situation faced by many of these grassland bird species. As always, you can visit the show notes page for this episode to learn more about Aaron's work. We'll have links to that PBS doc, as well as more detailed descriptions of the research and uh, examples of Aaron's artwork in there as well. These show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org slash EOC46. That's wildlensinc.org slash EOC46. This episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. Humidors.